Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 as we continue our study through the New Testament and uh, in uh, the book of uh, Philippians. And we'll just continue to go right on through. Chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 11, the title is All for Jesus. All for Jesus. The Apostle Paul, as we know, and he's told us, he was more than a conqueror. Even when he wasn't sure about his difficulties, when he wasn't sure about the situations that he was in, he knew it was going to be okay. Because he wasn't fighting for victory, he was fighting from victory. And so he gives this wonderful testimony in his letter to his friends at Philippi. He was just blown away as he wrote about the Lord Jesus coming down from heaven, conquering death, and then going back to the Father's throne. But he might have been hitting closer to home, to the heart of the ordinary Philippian believers. When he referred to Timothy's example of a believer. And then he might even have struck closer to the heart of the people when he wrote about Epaphroditus a man that they were around every day. They saw his life. They knew Peter's life. I'm sorry, Timothy. And, and they saw the way that they lived. They saw the, the godly lives of these two men. But again, especially Paphroditus, because he lived around them. They saw him every day. So he's using these two examples to stir up the heart of the believers in Philippi. So after stirring up their interest, Paul went on to give his typical exhortations. And then Paul made an application of his uh, great subjects, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He used them to show them their lives in comparison to the daily lives of his readers. So, so in chapters 3 and 4, he showed his friends the everyday value of having the right theology, the right doctrine. Positive thinking and continuous thanksgiving to God. Let's begin with verse 1 now of chapter 3. And Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same, same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. The word finally here doesn't mean finally I'm, I, that he's finally finishing the chapter. Okay, it's not that he's about to finish this letter because as we can see for ourselves, he still has two chapters left. The word means for the rest, for the rest of those that are reading. He says, this introduces the new section. Paul used the word finally in chapter 4, verse 18 as the one meaning I'm about to close. So Paul is now about halfway through his letter and we can be thankful for what comes next because we would really be robbed without this part of the letter. In the following verses, we can learn about Paul and the secret of his victorious life. Paul said, notice in verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. We can imagine the reaction in Philippi when this exhortation was read to the congregation, Rejoice in the Lord. Because somebody might say, hey, brother Epaphroditus, does Paul really rejoice 
because he's in prison or that he's in prison? You know, chained to a soldier night and day? You know, not having a single moment to himself? Not to mention that he's going to appear soon in front of Caesar. Does he really, does he really rejoice? Or is that just a religious cliché? You see, then Epaphroditus, without hesitation, would answer this question. Of course Paul rejoices. I am here because he does, and so are my wife, and so is my children. And he says, he, he, he says I, I bet he's singing right now and praising the Lord. You know, Epaphroditus tells the congregation how Paul's uncontainable joy is the talk of the royal guard. You know, hey, they're talking about Paul because of this, this rejoicing, this, this love that he has for the Lord. It's a common, a common topic of conversation in Caesar's house. It's the talk of the town, this, this guy Paul. And Epaphroditus says, hey, brothers, I, I went to Rome to cheer Paul up, but he cheered me up. And then someone else asked Epaphroditus, how can Paul be so happy about being in prison? They wanted to know, hey, how can I rejoice like that? Maybe one man in particular would say, how can I rejoice like that when I have a tyrant for a master? He sold my little girl the other day to a vulgar, a vulgar camel driver from Parthia. I'll never see her again. Who knows what's going to happen to her? Who knows what's happening to her now? How can I rejoice over that? I don't rejoice. I cry. And Epaphroditus tenderly answers them, brother, go ahead and cry. I cry with you. We all cry with you. But let me read to you again what Paul wrote. Rejoice in the Lord. Listen, brother, no matter how dark the day is, the Lord is still the Lord. The Lord is still full of love. He's still full of compassion. And the Lord is still concerned about us. And no matter what happens, the Lord is still on the throne and He's still sovereignly in charge. He's still able to make all things work together for good. Even for Paul as he faces Nero and for us, no matter what we might be facing this morning, some heartbreaking sorrow, the Lord is still mighty to save, mighty to keep. He tells them, let us focus our eyes on the Lord, even though they may be filled with tears. Because he knows all about those tears and he cares. He's still the Lord who loves us enough to die for us. He's still the Lord above all. So, Paul, so Epaphras tells them, Paul's exhortation is for you to, also this morning. Those that may be going something through something this morning. Rejoice in the Lord is Paul's message to us. Because if we dwell on our sorrows, if we dwell on, dwell on our circumstances, it won't be long before we become depressed and bummed out. And that depression will take over. And if we feed our depressions, it will grow until it sours all of life and it makes us useless, bitter. The Lord teaches us this lesson through His Word. We see it in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1-29. through 29, And if you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. Because it tells about the remarkable incident in the history of King Jehoshaphat when the Lord fought against His enemies. Because His country had been invaded by a powerful union from the east. 
So he calls for a fast and he leads his people in prayer. Listen in particular to verses 21 through 22 of Second Chronicles 20. It says, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, he set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. He said, a man or woman who praises God overcomes. There's power in praise. Believe it. You know, whenever you're going through something difficult or whatever you might be feeling at the moment, pray, begin to praise the Lord. Because you see, the attention will be off of you and on the Lord. There is power in praise. Let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's rejoice in Him who sits on the throne of the universe. The Lord who controls all things of matters, who controls all space and time. And He will make things work together for our good, Romans 8.28 says. Now, how, could that, how could it not be otherwise? Because He's good. He's good. Paul said, for me to write the same things to you here in verse 1, for me to write the same things to you, it's not tedious. In other words, he says, it, it's not tiring for me to repeat to you over and over these things. He says, because for you, it is safe. We need to hear these things over and over again when we're going through difficult times. Repetition is good training. That's why we need to read the scriptures over and over and over again so we can know the promises, so we know the word of God, so that when we go through these circumstances, I can fall back on the word of God. God said, All things work together for good. God said, I will go through tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We have these wonderful promises that get us through these difficult times, but we need to know them. We need to hear them often. We need to be reminded. We need to hear them over and over again until they become so thoroughly implanted in our hearts, in our heads, that, that they become a part of our mental makeup. so important Paul was glad to repeat the great truth about the faith so that they would become second nature to the Philippians Christ only always living in me that has to be the truth that inspires everything else in the conscious and unconscious mind of the child of God Christ only always living in me look at verse 2 He said, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. There are things that are dangerous. That's why we need to be alert. We need to keep our eyes open for deceivers, false prophets, for liars. Paul pointed to the character of the deceiver. He said, beware of the dogs. Dogs bite. Dogs can tear. In the Bible, dogs are always regarded as unclean animals. And in Paul's day, they would roam around in packs and they'd they'd tear people apart. They'd devour. They were wild dogs. And God's people are not dogs. They're sheep. The dogs of the Bible talk, talk about and create chaos among the sheep. 
So we can see from the different New Testament letters that many deceivers were being attacked of the flock that were being attacked in the early church. And Paul also emphasized the behavior of the deceiver. He says, beware of evil workers, the false teachers that Paul was referring to. They were up to no good. They were men who spoke in nice words, but they were evil in their behavior. The word evil means depraved, bad. And the word suggests a vicious personality and desire. So we can conclude that the badness of these false teachers was inward. It was in them. The word suggests a vicious personality and desire. Then Paul emphasized the claims of the deceiver. He said, beware of the mutilation. Now, when Paul says beware of the mutilation, he's making a play on words. The word translated circumcision literally means a mutilation. The Judaizers would teach that circumcision was necessary for salvation. But Paul says circumcision is nothing more than self-mutilation. The true Christian has experienced a spiritual circumcision in Jesus Christ. It's a cutting away of the flesh of the heart and it doesn't need any fleshly operations. Circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper, tithing, speaking in tongues, serving, all, and any other religious practices cannot and do not save a person from their sins. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. Verse 3. He said, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and notice, have no confidence in the flesh. The Jews lost sight of the basic meaning of circumcision and the rite, the ritual. As rituals often do, they deteriorate into an end themselves. They become what's important, not what it symbolizes. Circumcision can symbolize being a Jew as opposed to being a Gentile. But true circumcision is of the heart. The Old Testament act of circumcision was very painful and it was normally done when a a boy was eight days old. Adult male converts to Judaism had to submit to the custom of circumcision. They had to be, in order to be brought into the Abrahamic covenant that was endorsed by the Mosaic covenant. But now we Christians come into the new covenant. You know, what circumcision did symbolically for the Jews, the cross does for us. So in comparison to the false Christians, Paul describes the true Christians as the true circumcision. He worships God in the spirit, Paul said. He doesn't depend on his own good works, which are only of the flesh. And that person, it says, notice verses uh, here, rejoices, verse 3, rejoices in Christ Jesus. People who depend upon religion are usually boasting about what they have done. Oh, I have done this for the church. I give to the church so much and, and I do this for the church. And, and oh, I'm, you know, I'm just really special. Yeah, you know, it, that's what religion does. You go away feeling like, man, I am, you know, I'm a good catch for Jesus. The true Christian has absolutely nothing to boast about because it's what Jesus has done for me and not what I have done for myself. The Christian's boast is only in Jesus Christ. Jesus gives a parable that describes the two opposite attitudes. He has no confidence in the flesh. 
You see, the popular religious philosophy of today, and we hear it often, the Lord helps those who help themselves. And it was, it was also popular in Paul's day. And it was just as wrong then as it is now. When Paul says have no confidence in the flesh, the flesh, Paul means the old nature. The old nature that we received at birth from our first parents, Adam and Eve, that sin nature. The Bible has nothing good to say about the flesh. And yet most people today depend totally on what they themselves can do to please God. Flesh only messes us up. Our flesh corrupts God's way on earth. We think, God, what could I do for you that that would please you? And we come up with all of these things. It's good for nothing, this flesh. It profits nothing, the Bible says, as far as spiritual life is concerned. It does nothing good for me. It just gets me in trouble. It has nothing good in it. So it's no surprise that we should put no confidence in the flesh. It's not a surprise that we're told to crucify the flesh in Romans 6, 6. Because the flesh cannot be, sin cannot be suppressed. It cannot be neutralized. It cannot be strained. It has to be crucified. It has to die. And that's what Jesus did. He took all sin upon himself and died on the cross. One day a lady was arguing with her pastor about this matter of faith and works. She said, you know, pastor, I think that getting to heaven is a lot like rowing a boat. One oar is of faith, the other oar is works. And if you use both together, you get there. If you use only one, you're going to go around in circles. The pastor replied, well, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration. Nobody's going to heaven in a rowboat. There's only one good work that the sinner that they gets the sinner to heaven, and that is the finished work of Christ on the cross. Remember when he died and he gave up his spirit? What did he, for that he said, "What? It is finished." He did not say, "Well, you need me and." There's no Jesus and; it's Jesus only. He said in Mark ten eighteen, "No one is good but one, and that is God." The real meaning of worship is living a life of obedient service to God. Verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Here Paul was dealing with the Judaizers, the legalists, on their own ground. He says, you know, if you guys think you have so much to to be proud of in the flesh, he says, I do too. You see, the Judaizers mistook their religiousness for righteousness. And there was a time when Paul thought he was the cream of the crop when it came to righteousness. He thought he was the best of the best when it came to Jewish righteousness. So his attack on their confidence in the flesh wasn't just theoretical, it was the real thing. Because at one time, he was where they still were. At one time, he sat where they still sat. At one time, he thought the way they still thought. And at one time, he had done what they were still doing. But see, then Paul met Jesus. One glimpse of the Lord Jesus from heaven, and it was all over for Paul. 
It stripped away all of his self-confident religion from his heart forever. The moment Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized what he had been doing and where his religious zeal had brought him. And when he said, and when the Lord said to Paul, to Saul, you know, at the time he was called Saul, 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 he said, why are you persecuting me? And when Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? It pierced his heart. And Paul discovered that everything that he had trusted in wasn't just worthless. It was also wicked because it, it made him an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 and 6. Now he's going to mention all those things that he could take a lot of pride in. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, I was, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He says, I was of the stock of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, he said, persecuting the church. And concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. So Paul, man, he had all of these fleshly credentials that made him all big time when it came to the flesh and when it came to to self-righteousness. Paul was at the top of the list for salvation if works could save him. But works don't save him. First of all, he said, ritual? Man, I, I, I knew it all. I knew all the rituals. But he says, rituals are excluded from salvation. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day. He says, if rituals saved, then I was saved. You know, because he'd been circumcised exactly as Moses prescribed. But Paul rejects a ritual for salvation. He says, relationships are excluded. He says, I was of the stock of Israel. Paul was a relative of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If relationships saved, Paul was certainly saved. But relationships don't save. Third, respectability is excluded when it comes to salvation. Paul says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin wasn't the only brother that didn't reject Joseph, the only tribe that stayed loyal to Judah and Benjamin's borders that came into the holy city. But respectability doesn't save. Others may praise you, but only Jesus can save you. Fourth, he says, race is excluded. He says, I used to be, I I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul was a full-blooded Jew. So if race could save, Paul was in, but race doesn't save. What saves is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin and not the blood of a particular race. Fifth, religion is excluded from salvation. He said, concerning the law, man, I was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee, which means he was a very religious man. But that didn't save him. Sixth, reputation is excluded from salvation. He said, concerning zeal, man, I persecuted the church. Before Paul was saved, he had a good reputation among the Judaizers because of his zeal for their religious system of belief. But this didn't save him. It only made what he did more degraded. Seventh, righteousness can't save him. He said, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. Man, I was righteous. I was the righteous of righteous. Paul was blameless as far as the law was concerned, but that didn't save him. And Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 6, he says, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So our righteous can't save us. Only Jesus' righteousness can save us when it's imputed to us. 
It will purify the soul before God. It's His right. It's Christ's righteousness that I receive when I, when I receive Christ that allows me to stand before God. Because the Father looks at me and the Jesus says, He's one of mine. Therefore, Christ's righteousness makes me acceptable before the Father. When a person becomes saved, his perspectives in life change. And none of those perspectives change more dramatically than Paul's did. In verses 7 through 10 here, he speaks about the perspective of the believers from the viewpoint of his own experience and how he valued things. After Paul got saved, what he hated became the things that he honored and valued. Just like for us, man, those things that we used to mock and ridicule and hate before we were Christians, now they are valuable to us. What he used to think was worthy after his salvation, they became unworthy and of no value to him. It was all reversed. And what he used to think had no value has become to Paul the most valuable to him. This is the experience of a person who's truly saved. Who's truly saved. Look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, you know, what things were important to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Paul was looking at his religious life and he was counting what he had gained. But he laid all those things out in verses 5 through 6 and any Judaizer would have been pleased with every one of these things that Paul once had. But Paul examined all of them in the light of Christ and they were all so fail and faded in comparison. He could have one or the other. His carefully accumulated gains as a religious, a religious man or he could have Christ. But he couldn't have both. He couldn't have the things of the world in Christ. It had to be one or the other. And now... As being an experienced Christian, Paul did not hesitate for one moment to make that choice. He picked up all of those things that he once treasured and thought was so valuable, and he threw them away like a bunch of trash. He said, all that I gained in the world, it was, it was loss. What he once thought were worldly goods turned out to be millstones. And they would have left him spiritually bankrupt if he hadn't gained Christ. You see, having Jesus changed everything. Paul gladly wrote off all of his human religion for Jesus. Verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul gave up everything for Jesus, his home in Tarsus, his parents, all, all hope of settling down. He cast it aside. He gave up his Jewish religion. He gave up his ambition to climb to the top of the religious ladder to, so that he could become the leader of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish court in the land. Kind of like being a Supreme Court judge. That's, you know. He gave up his health to hardships. He gave up his health to whippings, dangers, shipwrecks. He gave up the smile and esteem of the Jerusalem church to minister to the Gentile world who did not know Jesus. 
He gave up his freedom and now he had just given up Epaphroditus, a close friend. That is, he separated from or sent him to Philippi where they needed him. He gave up his freedom, Epaphroditus. One day Paul would give up his life because of Nero's hatred for him. Gave it all up for Jesus' sake. Paul, Paul gladly counted all things as loss in order to know Jesus. And Paul was not going to let anything come between him and his visions. Paul was prepared to write off anything as dung, manure, as worthless refuse that might come between his soul and his Savior. I wonder what Paul would be asked or he would say if he was asked today. Paul, do you miss all those things that you gave up? Probably look at you and say, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? Those things were trash compared to seeing Jesus face to face. He says, I looked into his eyes and he looked right through me, right into my heart. And since that day, that's all I can see. I've heard his voice and that's all I'll ever hear. I love him with all my heart, soul, and with all my strength. I live just for him. I live for the day when I will see his face and I will hear his voice again. He says, all I want to know is Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and I want to hear him say, well done, Paul. Man, that should be all of our goals. Verse 9 and 10. And I want to be found in him. Notice, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul now lists a few things that he values very highly after he got saved. Salvation in Christ. He says, I, I, I want to be found in him. Paul valued his salvation in Jesus Christ above everything else that he had lost because of his salvation. Wise men will think, and evaluate salvation as being the greatest blessing of all. Salvation more than compensates for any loss in this world. I mean, nothing can compare, nothing can be as, as priceless, Paul is saying, as, as the Jesus that I know. Nothing can, can be better or compensate for any losses in the world. He said, schooling about Christ. You know, he, 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 he values this highly. He said, he said that I may know him. Paul lists four additional things that he really now values since he was saved. First, the knowledge of Christ. He mentioned this earlier in verse 8. But here, this is his desire to have the knowledge of Christ. I mean, our world puts a lot of, a lot of emphasis on knowledge, education, intellect. Now, we may know many things in life, but no worldly knowledge is so valuable as the knowledge about Jesus Christ. And you can't claim to be educated if you've never read the Bible. Plain and simple. Oh, I read many books in the world, and I'm quite, you know, literate, and I'm quite intelligent. If you've never read the Bible, man, you, you can't claim to be educated. There's nothing so valuable and teaching as knowing the word of God, what the Bible says. 
And yet the world does not consider that knowledge, the knowledge of Christ, as something of worth. And it's no wonder why this world is in such bad shape and why it will yield to the Antichrist. It's no wonder why people can think. Like I heard a, a, a reporter on the news the other day, you probably heard that they're wanting to, you know, stop tackling peewee football. And yet they can cut off a young boy's genitals and turn him into a girl. That's the mindset of people without the knowledge of Christ. Because some parent or some teacher or that little boy himself thinks that he's supposed to be a girl. Okay, well, we'll take care of that for you. Sick. Demonic. Plain and simple. The strength of Christ, Paul wanted to know. The power of his resurrection, Paul wanted to know. You know, most people deny that Jesus resurrected from the grave. They don't believe in the resurrection. But Paul wants the power of that resurrected life in his own life. This is spiritual power. It's not physical or material power. This power is the most valuable power of all. It's the only power I know that can truly transform a life from the flesh to the spirit. It's the only power I know that one can read the Bible one moment and the next moment he wants to receive the Lord. There's no power like that. It's the power to live a godly life. It's the power to defeat temptation and to serve the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Paul also wanted to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And these were the sufferings not of the cross, but for righteousness. The world certainly doesn't value, ex value experiencing these sufferings. Even many in our churches want nothing to do with these sufferings. But Paul, he puts great value on it. Experiencing these sufferings has a lot to do with our eternal glory. Paul said, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Failure to have eternity in our mind will affect our, will affect our values in a bad way. And it will bring great loss to you. He also wanted to be, notice, conformed to his death. Earlier, Paul spoke about the obedience of Christ and it was in obedience that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This speaks of great submission to God. In fact, there's no greater submission than that of Jesus Christ to God. He's the greatest example of submission to God. He said, it said he did everything that was pleasing to the Father. Men of the world hate submission. They want to rule. You have to learn how to follow before you can lead. Paul has a better sense of values now about this submission and he shows the contrasting values that believers have compared to the world's values. Let's close with verse 11. He said, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here is a final and perfect benefit that Paul received when he met Jesus. And it's the same for us. 
It's the guarantee of our future resurrection. When Paul says he would share in Christ's glory in our resurrected life. If you want spiritual blessing, you'll have to show, you'll have to show passion for them. Those blessings like Paul did. He wants these blessings. These are, he said, these are the things that I want. God doesn't hand out his special uh, blessings just to anyone. Man, there has to be a great desire for them. Do you really want them? Do we really want them that bad? That we'll be do the things that Paul did. That we'll look at the, the values of Christ the way Paul did. And devalue the flesh and the world like Paul did. Not many have much of a desire for spiritual blessings. They're more interested in the material blessings and the physical blessings in life. And that's why John said in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful passage in Philippians, Lord. And Father, how Paul made it clear, God, that that we are to have no confidence in this flesh, God. For this, this flesh is, is it's worldly, it's selfish, it's deceiving. There's nothing good about it, as Paul has, has told us. There's only one that's good, and that's Jesus. And may we look to him, Father, for all things. He's our example, the greatest example of good, the greatest example of submission, the greatest example of enduring. Again, just we can go on and on and on about him being our great example, our great Lord. Father, help us to desire to be like Christ. He's our pattern. We're not to compare ourselves to anybody else because we'll always find ourselves being better than somebody else. But our, our pattern is Jesus. And it's, and it's him that we need. And it's only him that can save us. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you recognize your need for Jesus then you ask Jesus to forgive you of all of your sins, to wash them away. And that you want Jesus, you want to invite him into your heart and say, Lord, I want you. I want you to come into my heart. I want you to save me. I want you to change my life. I want a fresh start. And you do that. And the Bible says that Jesus will come into your heart and he will change your life just like he did Paul's on the road to Damascus. And then you begin to grow in that relationship. Read the Bible, find you a good Bible teaching church and begin to grow and learn about that wonderful Savior who died on the cross for you. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your word. Father, we also thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. We thank you for your, your gosh, your extravagance, extravagance, God, and how you take care of us. 
how you take care of us abundantly, sufficiently, God. We never lack, again, because of your kindness, Lord. We thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.